With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 166 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a brilliant actor who has been working in the business for the last 16 years, but exploded over the last two. He was last year's Best Supporting Actor in a Limited Series or Movie Emmy winner for his portrayal of Christopher Darden in the FX Limited Series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story, and he is nominated this year for Best Actor in a Drama Series for his portrayal of Randall Pearson on the NBC drama series This Is Us, Sterling K. Brown. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 41-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how one high school musical set him on the path to becoming an actor, and what a struggle it was for many years to be one, even after attaining a bachelor's degree from Stanford and an MFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, how years of guest or recurring parts on TV series ultimately led to his first role as a regular on Lifetime's drama series Army Wives for seven years, and then to the life-changing part on The People vs. O.J. Simpson, how he wound up following O.J. with This Is Us, which turned out to be the highest-rated new drama series of the season, and why he feels that the role of Randall, an adopted son, a husband, and a father of two adopted children, is so important, not only to him, but to society at large, why the This Is Us storyline about Randall and his biological father, played by Ron Cephas Jones, was every bit as emotional for him to play as it was for viewers to watch, plus much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Sterling, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. You got it, man. So we always just begin with the most basic. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Ah, okay. <laughs> born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. My father, Sterling Brown Jr., was a grocery clerk at Kroger Stores, and my mother, Arlene Brown, was a school teacher. She taught high school and junior high in the Ladue School District, cool. St. Louis. Yeah. Nice. I understand there's a story behind the... K, that's more than just a name. It was sort of a big part of your identity, and particularly when it, at one time, it was the primary name. So maybe you can share that. Absolutely. Kelby is my middle name. That's what the K stands for, K-E-L-B-Y. And that's what I was known from zero to 16, I would say. And my father passed away when I was 10. His name, Sterling Brown Jr., is my name. But it always seemed like an old man's name because it was the name of your dad. Right. So after he had been gone for a while, it had been six years, 
I was just sort of yearning to hear his name again. Mm-hmm. And so I asked everybody, I said, I don't think I want to be Kelby anymore. It's time to become Sterling. And But the K is important to but keep the K in is there. there. Yeah. yeah, because you know, people know you. You know where you know people from by how they first address you. Yeah. You know, they're like, hey, Kelby, how you doing? Uh, it's like somebody <laughs> from high school or elementary school. Right. And then everybody else is on the Sterling. That's great. Path. Well, speaking of high school, from what I've, what I've read, hmm. it sounds like it was pretty soon after you started that you got your first taste of, of the acting bug. And in fact, in a pretty definitive way. I guess you had been an, a pretty good athlete, mm-hmm. but what I wonder is how did you get lured into into the theater, which often those two kinds of folks do not overlap. Sure. And then what was it that happened in that first production, I believe, that got you hooked? I started the school in the sixth grade, and I took my first acting class in eighth grade, which was on radio theater. Okay. So it wasn't even acting on stage. We would come up with these radio plays But there was such a creative outlet, and it was so much fun. So the following year, freshman year, I auditioned for the school's musical, the Troubadours' production of Godspell. Okay. And four freshmen made it into the production, which was a coup. Freshmen (laughs) never made it into the Troubadours' production, but four of us were in it. It was a great show. And we only go for three nights over Thanksgiving weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And at the end of the play, we're carrying Jesus out, and we sing this song. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And we're carrying him out. Saturday night in particular, the audience like erupts to their feet, and they start giving us a standing ovation before the show's even done. And my friend and I, Michael Hogan, we stood up on stage. We took our bow, and I think I whispered to him or he whispered to me, we got to keep doing this shit. (laughs) Because until that point in time, that high, I had only felt on the athletic field. I was a pretty good football player, Mm -hmm. and I I could feel it there. But I also came with a certain amount of bumps and bruises along the way. I was like, man, I can get this high and not get the shit kicked out of me. (laughs) Like, that's a win-win, right? So from that moment on, I just did a play. We did a musical every fall semester, and we did a straight play every spring semester. And I was always involved in both of those shows. And I I loved it. Like Everything else sort of faded away, and you got a chance to immerse yourself into another human being. I didn't think it was something that you could do for a living. Well, that's where I want to go next, yeah. because it sounds like you go off to, you get into Stanford, yeah. terrific school, but even though you had fallen in love with acting, as you say, you were, I guess, a practical-minded person, or you had parents that were demanding that you be practical, because that was not your focus when you went off there, right? No, I was an economics major. I had an internship at the Federal Reserve Bank, wow. and I was very good at math. I was a BC calculus guy, AP economics, et cetera, and I thought that I was going to do something with NAFTA because I did AP Spanish 5 as well. And so I didn't feel like the school that I went to, you can just quote-unquote, throw it all away with something frivolous, (laughs) right? And it wasn't even my my mom's insistence. It was just coming from a very frugal beginning, wanting to be able to establish a lot in life that was better, right? right? I figured, you know, economics would provide that. But when I got to Stanford and I auditioned for my first play there and I got a really good role, and the professor said, you know, I know you're not going to major in this, but just stick around the department, do a show every once in a while. Let me stop you for one second if yeah. I can. So I have read about a 
Professor El- Elam, Elam, I guess that's who Harry we, Elam Jr. Harry Elam Jr. Okay, yes. so because the fact that you even got involved at all in theater at Stanford when that was not your intention, let's even go back to how I that happened. It. I can give it to you. Yeah. He came to our dorm right. looking for African-American students to audition for an August Wilson play, Joe Turner's Coming Because Home. you're in a dorm that was primarily... Because I lived in the black dorm on campus. Okay. The ethnic theme house for African-Americans called Ujama. Now, why was that? How does one end up in an all-black dorm? You ask. Yeah. <laughs> First and foremost, you put in a request. Because there's four theme houses. Okay. There's the African-American, the Asian-American, the Native American, and the Latino American. Okay. And so coming from a very homogenous high school background and mostly white, there was a deep yearning to be sort of inundated with culture that was mine, right? And so the fact that I could go to Stanford University and still find the sort of enclave within the campus that was Ujima was perfect. It was perfect. So Professor Elam... Mm-hmm. Comes to our dorm looking for people to audition. And I remember having this thought, like, oh, you know what? I did some acting in high school. Like, maybe I'll give it a shot, you know? <laughs> and the other thing that was beautiful about it, up until this point, every character that I played in high school was not written to be African-American necessarily. You know, I've done Arthur Miller. I've did Stoppard. I've done Pinter. But now I get a chance to do some Wilson. And stepping into that role with an all-black cast, with a black director... I felt like I was home for the first time. Wow. We thank Professor Elam for that. Thank uh, you, Harry. Absolutely. Yeah. You started in that first production, and I'm going to read back a quote. Give it to me. I guess at the end of that show's run, he says to you, quote, I know you don't plan on majoring in theater, but you might just want to hang around the drama department and have some fun with it because you've got some talent, close quote. So had he not said that, would it have been a one-off and you're back to economics or were you already now intrigued and and we're going to stick with it? That's a good question because I have to go back to my 18-year-old sort of self to really, I knew that I loved that production and I probably would have kept around anyway, but I'm glad it was that production first because most of the theater that we were doing at Stanford at that time came from the grad students in directing. They actually had a PhD program in directing. And most of their sort of bent was avant-garde and not traditional theater. So I love just the illumination of the human condition, where they were interested in, like, new forms. They, the, the grad students, the, the PhD students, were more like Treplev, and I think I was more like Tregorin. I was looking for something a bit more, you know, just regular. Right. So I had that experience first. Okay. And because he was a black male role model on campus and a professor, it was natural mentoring relationship mm-hmm. just sort of took took fold. Yeah, I think I would have stuck with it. And because he was there yeah. to encourage me, that was huge. So you're saying he was sort of something like a father figure? Absolutely. So you do stick with it. It sounds like you would be in productions pretty regularly. You said also, quote, I realized that every time I did a play, my grades got better because it fed my soul, close quote. So even though you were still focused on economics, and I guess, did it remain your major or did you eventually switch? I eventually switched. After two years, I finally worked up the uh, gumption to switch majors. And I had this conversation with my mom. I said, Ma, I'm thinking about switching my major. She said, okay. I said, I'm thinking about switching to drama. Mm -hmm. She's like, okay. And then my mom, being the good Midwestern Christian woman that she is, she says, did you pray about it? I say, yes, ma'am, I did. And this is the way you feel led? I said, yes, ma'am, it is. 
And she said, well, you do your thing. That's great. And it's had nothing but support from that moment on. That's terrific. Yeah, I guess man. her only, from, from what I'd come across, her only occasional checking in thing is, are you, are you serving God in your acting roles? Is that what it is? Yeah. You know, I did a show I can remember for FX 10, 12 years ago called Starved. Yeah. About people with eating disorders in New York City. And I played a bulimic cop who would take food from bicycle delivery people <laughs> and then binge and then purge using his baton yeah. to the solar plexus, right? Ahead of its time. Yes. But mom watched the pilot and I knew pretty much how her reaction would be. And I said, Ma, thanks for watching the pilot. Don't feel obligated to watch anything else if you don't want to. And she simply said, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so she she was not gonna not gonna block anything. She, yeah, she wasn't gonna block it, but she wasn't gonna watch it. But right. she would ask me later on, like, how does this character glorify God, right? And that was important to her. And I said, Ma, for for me, we're all come from the same place, and the Creator made all of us. And whether or not we're all holy and perfect or whatnot, doesn't mean that we don't still have a story worth telling. So I feel like me stepping into somebody else's shoes gives me an opportunity to empathize with their plight in life and release judgment. Because ye without sin can cast the first stone. There you go. Yes. So you graduate having now majored in drama. or yeah. act, Then I think immediately after, I don't think there was a, a gap, you go off to NYU Tisch, which is about as good as you can do also for grad school as an actor. Solid. Not many get in in any class. How big is the class there? We started with 18. We finished with 16. Wow. Yeah. What is the reason that that place has the reputation that it does? What did it provide you? It was complete immersion. You know how for a while... You find in classes that you, there's some classes you have to take and there's some classes you want to take. You get to grad school in a conservatory environment and all of the classes are just what you want. And it's rigorous and it's timely. It's a 12 to 14 hour day, six days a week. But because you're doing something that you love, you can't get enough of it. So it provides you a work ethic, a way of approaching the work in terms of moving from thought to thought, the importance of being in the moment, and then other technical skills in terms of accent work and speech and voice, something that can sustain eight performances a week, right? right? Because it is a theater training program. Mm -hmm. And I think they have more classes nowadays geared towards the camera, but that fundamental background I find incredibly important because, quite frankly, I think it's easier to make the transition from stage to camera than vice versa. You know, if you're used to hitting the back wall, you can always turn the volume down. <laughs> but if you're used to just playing for, you know, that hundred and with the close up, when you get on stage and you have to turn the volume up, you seem, it seems forced and artificial to you unless you've been exercising that muscle. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a three year. Three years. So you come out and it makes sense that I guess because you're in New York and had been training to do theater. You stay in New York, which is why you ended up doing a lot of regional Correct. theater and also a lot of episodic TV. More of that, which was more of that used to be shot in New York, right? So is that why we start seeing you on NYPD Blue and The Good Wife and a lot of these things that I think shot out of New York? NYPD Blue shot at Fox really? in oh. LA. <laughs> but I would come back and forth for pilot season. Let me go back to okay, the yeah. lot of regional theater. Yeah. And it makes sense. When you are in New York and you have the degree from NYU 
it carries a little bit of weight. When you come to L.A., it carries little to no weight. (laughs) Because what happens is they'll look at your resume and they'll say, oh, oh, so you do theater. Right. And I say, well, I have done a lot of theater, but I'm looking to do more film and television, which is why I'm here. But you have to do it in order to be seen as someone who does it. So you know? it was always your desire to do screen stuff as well, or was that just sort of a financial necessity because it's hard to make a living in the theater? That's a good question. I think I love all mediums, right? I never want to stop doing theater. I will go back to the theater time again over and over mm-hmm. and over until the day that I die. Quite frankly, as you get older, I tend to think that there are a greater variety of roles for mature actors on stage mm-hmm. than they're on camera. Mm-hmm. So while I'm maintaining this youthful visage, <laughs> I shall take full advantage of it while the camera still right, doesn't right. crack when I come on screen. But it, it's a reality in that it's hard to advance your station in life just going from theater to theater. It is a brutal lifestyle. And there are so many concessions that one makes just to be able to be an actor in New York City. And it's a young person's game. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about going back to New York, I was like, you basically have to make about 30% more money to have the same lifestyle that you have. And Los Angeles ain't cheap. No. You know what I'm saying? But I love the beginning of my career. Like I, I think about when I first got out of school, I was doing a play at the Classical, Classical Stage Company, which is right around the corner from NYU. I didn't even have a speaking role. I was in a Joanne Acolytus operetta with original music by Philip Glass called In the Penal Colony, based off a Kafka short story, (laughs) right? I made 300 bucks a week, and I was living in Harlem in a four-story walk-up that cost me $85 a week. It was a furnished room that had a shared bathroom for the hallway. And I was like, yo, I'm clearing 215. I'm pocketing two fifteen a week. You killing me? I'm. This is the life. I'm rich. Yeah. Like I am living the dream. Right. And I can remember my manager saying to me at the time, "She's like, I just hope it goes up from there." Yeah. I was like, I oh, hear you, man. but this is great. But so your outlook was always positive, and and I mean, when was that first trip to L.A.? Let's let's put let's start there. Well, the first trip that I made to L.A. for acting was in 2001 because we did our showcase. We did our showcase for NYU with Yale and UCSD. We did it in New York, and then we came out west and did it in Los Angeles. And what was cool about that is that the showcase in New York, we have these sheets of paper that we hand out to the agents and managers and casting directors. And if they like us, they say they, you know, send a headshot and resume. If they really like you, they request an interview, right? So everybody's happy to get their packets back (laughs) and to see what kind of response they get. When you come to Los Angeles, we don't hand out sheets of paper because they don't want to deal with paper in L.A. (laughs) What they do is they set out hors d'oeuvres, right, and drinks, and you have to go out to the table and just mingle. Oh, it's like speed dating. It's like speed dating. And for us sort of New York actors, the idea of not letting our work speak for itself and that we have to now go and sort of glad hand. We had no idea how to even exercise that muscle. I mean, it was the most painful and awkward thing. So that was my first trip to L.A. and it let me know that I needed to start in New York. So nothing came of that? No, nothing came of it in Los Angeles, except I I signed with the Bicoastal Agency. um, So they got a chance to see me in L.A. as well as the people in New York. So that was good. But the theater... 
I mean, we got a chance to do, I mean, Shakespeare, Shakespeare in the Park. I did a regional premiere of Top Dog, Underdog, the play that won the Pulitzer Prize by Susan Lloyd Parks. It was so much fun. And it's such hard work. If theater actors were paid what they deserved, they would be the highest paid actors in the world. Because the work is intense. There's no second takes. It's you in front of that stage from beginning to end. But it's also the most fulfilling because you get a chance to follow that character's journey without interruption, you know? And that's that's something that I, most actors that I talk to always relish, oh, you yeah. know? But then you segue, I think the first major guest spot or a co-star that turned into a guest star mm-hmm. that turned into a recurring was on Third Watch, which was based in New York. Right. And I remember the first audition for it was like two lines, and they're like, oh, this guy's pretty good. <laughs> And I wound up doing nine episodes of the show. You are a Stanford and then NYU Tisch trained actor. Mm -hmm. And you're having to go and, you know, be thrilled that you got two lines as a guest actor in a TV episode. Is that demoralizing in any way? Or could you be content with doing your theater for not a lot of money and occasionally popping up in something on TV or or does a part of you say, like, you know, I, I worked hard. I deserve better, and I'm not going to really be happy until I get better. The deal that I made with God when I graduated from school, I said, God, we spent a lot of money on this degree. <laughs> I said, if I can pay the bills by doing what it is that I love, I'll be all right. And that's been my lot in life. Since I've graduated from grad school, I have not had to bust tables or temp or anything else. And, you know, God bless everybody that has to do it because the hustle is real. Yeah. Right? So the fact that that's been my situation was all I ever wanted. I've had a a successful career for 17 years. Mm -hmm. Any opportunity that came my way felt like a blessing. That's great. You know, because... You're still learning, and you're still learning how to convert theatrical truth into cinematic truth at the beginning of your career. I remember Andre Brower came to speak to us while we were still at NYU, and he said Michael Beach, the both of them being graduates of the Juilliard School mm-hmm. of Drama, <laughs> said he had to teach him how to act for the camera. He didn't know what a mark was. He didn't know what back to one was. So for us theater fools, we're just faking it till we make it. <laughs> So the fact that I got two lines on Third Watch and that it turned into nine episodes, I was cool. I was cool. (laughs) So just for the record, I guess the most notable TV parts pre the ones that everybody knows now, OJ and this us, I guess you mentioned Star for FX as the cop with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Then there was the recurring part of a vampire hunter on WB's Supernatural. Supernatural, yes. CBS's Person of Interest, that was another recurring. Right. And then... Roland Burden on Lifetime's Army Wives. That was probably the biggest. That was a regular for like seven years, right? Yes, sir. So did I leave any of the big highlights out of there? No. Okay. No, those are are the biggest ones, for sure. What was going on in your life when you first heard about this, I don't know if it was titled what it ended up being called, but this this limited series that somebody wanted to do about O.J. Simpson? What was the first inkling that it was even out there? Pilot season 2015. I think it was like January. You get the audition, and they say like, you know, my thing manager, my manager called me, 
So do you know anything about Christopher Darden or O.J. Simpson trial? I'm like, I was like, Jen, what are you talking about? Of course you know Christopher Darden. <laughs> and she's like, well, they want to see you for that. So I was reading the character description, reading the breakdown of it, and they were saying something about, you know, guy who's kind of got no mojo, not very cool or anything like that. And I was like, oh, that's kind of harsh, but yeah. like, okay. So I just started watching a bunch of footage from the trial, different interviews, et cetera. And I sh shaved my head immediately. I was like, I, I think this could play. Mm. And I, I did more research. J Darden's birthday is in early April. My birthday's April 5th. I think his birthday is, is like a day or two wow. away from mine. The timing of it was about 20 years after the trial. And I was, I think, the exact same age that he was when we went into production for the show. Wow. So there were so many things that I was thinking in my mind. I was like, I look all right with a bald head. This works. <laughs> I put on my little glasses. I like, these things work. And I just started working on his voice and his rhythm and his mannerisms. And when I went in for the audition, he said, you know, and this is not my words, but like, I think you're a better actor than he was a lawyer. <laughs> I was like, can you sort of muddy it up right. a little bit? They thought it was too clean. I was like, I, I can muddy it up a little bit. So I went in thinking that I gave a really good audition. And can I ask, who was that? Is it the casting director or who was in there? Jenny McCarthy. Okay. Yeah, and her associates. And when I came out to my manager, I said, if they don't pick a name, I think I got a shot. And we should say, had, had they already at that point announced other casting? Because virtually everybody else in the large ensemble was a household name. Yeah, yeah. I think they had already announced Travolta. Okay. Cuba may have already been attached as well. Paulson may have been in Courtney, but I think that was it thus far. Okay. Yeah. So is that intimidating when you're thinking about your own prospects at that point where even if you've done a wonderful audition? Yeah. Or did you know or suspect that those other parts, maybe the resemblance to the person was easier to get down or the voice or the other things mm. easier to get down than Darden because this is not an easily imitated guy. And not sure. only that, I mean, there's a lot of complexity of this part. Appreciate that. How did I feel? I think I feel the way that every actor in Los Angeles feels every pilot season. <laughs> this could be the one. Right. They dangle this golden carrot right. in front of us that says that life could change. And you have to fool yourself time and time again into believing that that is the truth. Otherwise, you become discouraged, disgruntled, pessimistic, and that's you can't move forward like that. So each time, I'm like, all right, here we go. <laughs> you know, and I've done it so many times before, and most of the times, nothing happens. But this time, something happened. Now, did you, coming out of that initial audition, feel like it was particularly strong that your audition had gone particularly well? I crushed that <laughs> audition. What I will you, not was, hesitate to say Was that. there a specific scene? What did you have to do? So let's see. It was the title of the episode when we finally went to air. 105 is called The N-Word. And Darden is presenting why he doesn't want this to become a racial case. The, you know, he doesn't want it to become about race. It should be focused on the victims of the case. And so it's, you know, right before Cochran comes up and eviscerates him <laughs> in front of everyone. So that was the scene. And then later I had a callback in which there was a scene between Marsha and I and Marsha, 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 where it's late night 
and we're in our office and it just ha- had to deal with Simi Valley, mm-hmm. right? But not the first time. The first time was just in the courtroom mm-hmm. stuff. But I, I felt like you can sense from the casting directors and see like them smiling and whatnot. And you feel it when you're in the pocket, you know? So yeah, I felt good. That's great. At any point in this whole association with Darden, what was the, the hardest aspect? Because this is a guy who doesn't really show a lot of emotion one way or the other. Right. How do you play that? You know, the internal I find to be just as expressive as the external especially when you have the benefit of the camera, you know? You have to trust your directors and that they're gonna be able to see what it is that you're trying to convey. But the man sat on so much. And as a black man in a white world, you know, the world of law, being the black face of the prosecution in that he had so much going on inside of his soul. And so you just try to think the thoughts. And if you think them loud enough, Hopefully somebody will be able to see him. So you do your audition, maybe even the callback, and then you go off to do this great little indie that didn't get as much of an audience as it deserved, Whiskey Whiskey Tango Tango, Foxtrot. Good little movie. Directed by John Reckla and Glenn Ficarra, who will (laughs) come up in this again later. Yeah. But at the time, while you were waiting for the verdict and a sense of whether you're going to get OJ, what is your outlook on life. You just, it's hard. I can't imagine you're just going about your day carefree. Well, here's the timetable. Just to clarify, yeah. the, the callback happened in the midst of shooting Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Oh, man. Because I'm shooting Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, I believe it's April or May of 2015. The audition had come and gone three months in the past. And I was sitting in the hotel lobby looking at my IMDb Pro account and checking out who had booked all of the roles that I had auditioned for <laughs> that pilot season. Such as? I was I was looking at Fargo. I was like, oh, Bo Keem, good for you, man. That's great. <laughs> and then there's this one shooter that just sort of hit USA, and I was like, oh, they went with uh, with Omar. Good for you. <laughs> and so, which is fun, Not, which is what I was accustomed to. Right. Like, there is a pecking order, and there's a certain slew of names, Makai and Bokeem <laughs> and Omar and Hill and all these other names that sort of come before yours. And if they all have jobs, <laughs> then maybe Brown's got a shot. Right. Right? Right. In the midst of me doing this most morbid of things, I got a phone call from my agent and manager saying that they want to bring you back to originally screen test with Sarah, but Sarah was unavailable in New York, so I came back to read with our producers, Brad Simpson and Nina Jacobson in Los Angeles. And how'd you find out you got it? I was sitting on the lot for a while while they were talking amongst themselves. Right after the audition? Right after this, no, bef- uh, whatever you would call it. Go this. in for the callback. Yeah. For the callback. I don't know if it's a test or what happened, right. but I'm looking around to see what other people they've brought in for. There's usually three or four people. And I'm sitting in the lobby, and I'm looking at every brother that walks by. (laughs) There's some light-skinned cats. There's dudes with dreads. I'm like, oh, they're really thinking outside of the box. (laughs) I wouldn't have shaved my head last time if I knew they were going to be so open. But basically, those were just dudes working at Fox. I was the only person that they called back. Oh, wow. So they come out, and they talk to me for a while. And the one thing that being in Los Angeles has taught me is that as soon as you enter the space— you're the character. Because there's this real desire to find the guy. Oh, he was just him. 
Like there was no acting. <laughs> it was just him, right. right? In New York, you can sort of show them like, all right, this is what I've worked on. Tell me what you think. And they're like, oh, man, it's beautiful. You transition in and out of Sterling to whatever it is that you're doing. I just tried to show up as Darden and make them think that Sterling was Darden. And they talked to me for like a half hour about my time at Stanford when the trial was happening and my experience of it. And then so he's like, oh, okay, you want to read some? I was like, sure, let's go read. Read the scenes. And Brad would give me direction. And then we'd read the scene again. And Nina would be sitting on the couch looking at it. And the whole time, Nina would just rock back and forth. (laughs) And she'd have this huge grin on her face. And I'd try to act like I didn't see it. So I finish with the audition. I leave to take my son to his basketball practice. And in the middle of basketball practice, I get a phone call from my agent and manager saying that you're going to be playing Christopher Darden in the People versus OJ. So you're at a basketball game. You can't totally flip out, right? What do you, what do, you do? I cried. You did? Yeah, man, I cried. Because I knew that it had the potential to do what it has ultimately done in terms of changing my life. Before I ask you to characterize what that change has been, yeah. I want to first step backwards and let's just talk about the real situation that you are now going to be portraying or, you know, part of portraying. And you just referenced that you were at Stanford when this was all going down with OJ, the the trial all those years ago. What did you think of Darden and of OJ and of the verdict as a 20-year-old kid back then? I, along with the, the rest of black America or the majority of we're firmly on the side of the defense. Mm-hmm. And I can, speaking for myself, I don't know if I thought O.J. was innocent or guilty, but I thought, here's a man that the criminal justice system is trying to take down who looks like me, right? And this is the first instance in which I've seen the justice system work in favor of someone who looks like me. And it was a momentous and joyous occasion because I was in, again, I'm in Ujima, right? Right? at Stanford University, which is 50% African-American and 50% other. And when it goes down and we're all watching... This is the verdict. The verdict. The collective euphoria of the African-American students was, you know, dynamic. We went crazy. And then the other half of the students living (laughs) in the dorm were looking at us like, are you kidding? (laughs) Like in a state of shock. And it's when you see like that kind of video happen across the country. I mean, it was the most interesting thing to see that our experience could be so completely different based upon what had happened for each of us coming into that. Yeah, You can't talk to too many black men that I know of my age who've been around and even at that age of 18, 19, 20, that hadn't had some sort of significant run in with law enforcement in which they felt as if they were not treated in a way in which they were supposed to be served or protected. Had you? Oh, yeah. My dad had a Fleetwood Cadillac, right? So (laughs) it was a big car, and it was kind of shiny, and it it drew attention. And you see a young man, 16, 17, 18, driving around in his car, and I was parked in front of a friend's house one time, waiting for him to come home because I arrived there before he had gotten Mm -hmm. there. And the neighbors called the police and said, there's something suspicious going on. And so the police come as I'm sitting in my car, looking over my homework, waiting for my boy to get here. And he's like, do you have a reason to be here? I'm like, yeah, I'm waiting for my friend. I was like, what's your friend's name? I have to say my friend's name, like why we're meeting and all this stuff. And then they finally leave you alone. I've, I've had a few 
incidents like that mm -hmm. of just what you call DWB, <laughs> driving while black. And in this case, I wasn't even driving. Right. Right? But it puts you on guard to know the way in which you are perceived is different than your white counterpart. And you have to mind your P's and Q's in a very particular way to survive. So for you personally, was the euphoria over OJ's verdict because you believed that he actually had not committed the crime and was therefore being vindicated? Or was it more sticking it to the man? Sticking it to the man, Jack. Sticking it to the man, hands down. I mean, it was, he was the one on trial that had so little to do with him from my perspective at that time. Uh, and it had to do with a history of racism, of being subjected to inhumane cruelty, of being treated like and made to feel like I was less than a human being, right? For a culture in a country. That's what the euphoria was about to me. But as your show did such a beautiful job of, of portraying, the other half of the folks who, who you say were looking at you guys like you were nuts yeah. are thinking of all the people to put your hopes and, and sort of uh, dreams on, this guy, first yeah. of all, wanted nothing to do with, with other members of the black community sure. and also probably did it, right? Right. So it's just, it's an amazing thing because we all remember where, where we were in that yeah. moment. But anyway, now, t whatever, 20 years later, do you reach out to this guy who you'd watched on TV essentially be humiliated, Christopher Darden, yeah. knowing that you're going to have to play him? Is there any anything you felt that you could get out of speaking with him that motivated you to pick up the phone? You know, no one knows what that experience was like except for him. So I was hoping to have a conversation with him just to know exactly what he was going through, right? He chose not to have that conversation, and that's okay. Because reading his book, In Contempt, reading Tubin's book, you know, The Run of His Life, doing the research that I did, I think Darden had his heart broken. You know, he believed in the case. He believed that the evidence led to the fact that O.J. Simpson was guilty of a double homicide. And to spend that much time and that much effort to not get the outcome that you're looking for, outside of the victim's families, I feel like he's the person that still wears the scars of that trial more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So now you, you go to work for 10 episodes, was mm -hmm. it? I mean, that's a, it's got to have been a, a while, right? Yeah, yeah. We went from about June, October, maybe late May to October. So yeah. was there a scene for you that proved to be the hardest or the most emotional or, or something that you are proudest of when you now look back at all that? Well, I'm proud of, of quite a few scenes. I love working with Sarah Paulson and that scene when we're in the office at night, I feel it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful scene. Like two workers coming together in the trenches, just having a moment of beauty. I 80 like. years, 90 years from now when you join the rest of us in kicking the bucket, that's going to be the scene. It's that, a good scene. Yeah. It's a good scene. Yeah. It's a good scene. And then conversely, there's two scenes that were tough <laughs> because Darden, he, he sits on a lot of stuff throughout most of the episode. And then in episode nine, he's like, you know what, man, I'm fucking pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pissed and I got some right. shit to say to right. some people. Whoever's going to hear it, I'm about to say it. And so when he's almost held in contempt in the courtroom, 
that was a scene that I, I had rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And then when we would get up to shoot it, like I would get so mad that the lines would just flew out of my head. <laughs> it happened like twice. And Anthony uh, Hemingway, who was directing the episode, he called Cut. I took five minutes to just go over it to calm down mm-hmm. because I was feeling his rage. Mm-hmm. Right. And I still had to be able to articulate through his rage. We came back, we shot it and it turned out great. But it just took a second to like e- find the equilibrium of it all. And then when he expresses his frustration with Marsha in, in the elevator, it was funny because I came into work that day and Sarah and I, two peas in a pot, mm-hmm. love each other. And she's like, hey, Sarah, how you doing? I'm like, mm-mm. <laughs> she said, you're not talking to me right now. I said, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> you went you went method hard. I right? went I went pretty hard because yeah. I knew I couldn't just be smiley, happy, go lucky, and then turn to the place that I needed to turn to. And so after the scene was over, and she's like, that was good. <laughs> and then we got to hug it out after it was done. Because I could, you know, it's so interesting this profession because you spend so much time thinking about yourself your voice, your lines, your makeup, etc., in the hopes of communicating something that can become a shared experience so that ultimately it's not about you, right? And so I was hoping that when people saw this show and saw Darden in the midst of the show, that they'd have a greater understanding of what he had to endure just to be in that environment because... I mean, he was called everything under the sun. Uncle Tom, you know, race trader, sellout, et cetera. And I remember thinking those mm-hmm. things about him as well. But now I'm recognizing that this man was in an impossible situation and volunteered to be in this situation and stuck it out through to the end. And so the greatest compliment that I got was like, man, you changed the way that I thought about Christopher Dunn. And clearly changed the way you thought about Christopher Darden, which Indeed. is kind of the amazing thing about your profession, that it just forces you, I guess, to empathize with whoever you're playing yeah. and maybe can actually change your own outlook on things. You can't judge them and play them at the same time, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm, maybe some people can, but I don't know how you do it effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the first time you heard the word Emmy in conjunction with this? Was there somebody that was saying early on, I see this thing playing out? Yeah. I mean, there would be people on set. I think my DP, even Nelson Craig, mentioned something like, ah, Sterling's going to win an Emmy. I'm like, hey, man, I don't know what you're talking about. But like Sarah and I would have conversations where the editors would watch the show and they'd be like, the chemistry between you guys is really coming across like something special. Mm -hmm. We'd be like, oh, thanks. Appreciate that. It's good to hear. (laughs) You know, you're still in this bubble just trying to do your job. And then the writers would come and they would be watching the dailies, and they would just have these big smiles on their faces, you know. And then you're working with Ryan, so anything that Ryan does is going to have a little bit of that kind of buzz around it. We just had him on the podcast yesterday. Did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, Did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah clearly, yeah. because <laughs> the man maintains yes, buzz. Yes. So, yeah, you would hear these whispers, and you just try to push them to the side because you're still just trying to tell the story in the best way you know how to. Take me through, again, let's just note, you'd been at this for, what year did you get out of Tish? 01. 01. This is now 1-6. Mm-hmm. So 15 years later, 
you wrap this all up, it goes out, it starts rolling out, whatever was it, week by week. Yeah. Buzz just grows and grows and grows. Get to the summer. Take me from Emmy nomination morning through Emmy awards night. Just for you, what those two dates, you know, how they looked. From someone who's spent most of their career on the outside, you know, looking and saying like, man, I wonder what that must be like. How, how crazy is that to be nominated for an Emmy or whatnot? To now be inside of it, it's even crazier. <laughs> because, you know, people start whispering and saying like, hey, man, we think you got a real shot. And there's different odds makers and publications like yours, like <laughs> making predictions, et cetera. And you're like, I don't, I don't want to read it. I don't want to read anything. Let's let it go by, you know, because what happens will happen. And you want to be able to just enjoy whatever moment you're in. Because you don't start doing this for awards, mm-hmm. right? But it's nice to be recognized for a job well done, okay? So I get the nomination. And John gets the nomination and David gets the nomination. So I was like, oh, all three of us got nominated. <laughs> I was like, none of us are going to win, so that's fine. Because everybody will vote for somebody else and right, that'll split. be that. Yeah. Exactly. So then you start looking at the cats from Fargo because <laughs> Jesse got nominated. And, and Bo Keem got took your no- fart. And yeah. Bo <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, they got the two Fargo cats, but they may cancel each other out. And so Dr. House may finally wind up with the Emmy <laughs> that he's been longing for right. for such a long time. Yeah. So that was my perspective on it. Like, there were so many wonderful performances from my castmates, from people at the network that I was with at the time, that I was like, whoever wins is deserving. Like, who's the loser? Like, how do you say who wins, who loses? So you go through that, and you go through different Emmy events, and you meet people, and they'll sort of shake your hand and be like, I voted for you. (laughs) And you're like, thanks. I was like, maybe you say that to the other five dudes, too. I'm not quite sure, but, you know, I appreciate that enthusiasm. And then you, you get to the night, and the night is, it's a long day. You, you know, hair and makeup and picking out your tuxedo and trying to look like you actually belong <laughs> and that you're not just faking it, you know, because you feel like you're sort of faking it. Like, I'm not supposed to be here with all these <laughs> famous people, man. There's famous people here. And then I was fortunate enough to have my name called. And I was overwhelmed. I was truly overwhelmed. And the only thing that motivated me to walk up on stage was Michael Geyser telling me beforehand, I think you only have 60 seconds. If it happens, Who's your publicist? my yeah. publicist, I think you only have 60 seconds, so you want to make the most of that time. And I was like, if it happens, we'll see. And then I heard his voice. I was like, walk up on stage. And I remember walking slowly, because I'd already seen a few young ladies face plant. Yeah. <laughs> so thankfully, I didn't have a train or anything right. like that. <laughs> And, and I looked out, and people were standing up, man. People were standing up. I was one of them. And clapping. Yeah. And it was to have that kind of love from your peers, from the people inside the room, was a special moment. I will never forget it for the rest of my life. And then I just started speaking. I was like, try to sound like you got some sense. <laughs> like, don't, don't say too many ums or what have you. <laughs> And get out of there before they play you off. And I almost made it before they played me <laughs> off. But you know. And it was a very nice speech. You Thanks, your parents and all of that. Let's talk about how you got a return invite just a year later, which is not a very common thing. Right. Especially for a different production. Yeah. My understanding is that you were cast in This Is Us before OJ even aired. 
That is true, because I auditioned for the pilot for This Is Us in October of 2015, and we finished shooting like October 23rd, so I had already auditioned for the show. And I had the script, and I was telling Sarah, I said, Sarah, I think I found the next thing that I want to do. But that's amazing in so many ways, because first of all, kudos to them, because they didn't just jump on the train that was already, you know, that left the station. They saw... You know, independent of OJ, that that you know you deserve this, but also an interesting thing, which brings us back to Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Sure. How did the casting of This Is Us all go down? They wanted to have a meeting with me uh, to meet Dan Fogelman. And first of all, I have to say this is sort of my my entree into meetings. <laughs> Most of the time, they just show up, say your lines, go home. Let me see what you can do. But this was a meeting. And John and Glenn, I'd worked with on Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, and they had mentioned to Dan that they thought that Sterling could be a great pick for Randall. And they were going to already be directing Directing the pilot. Directing the pilot, correct. So I go in to meet Dan, and it was an opportunity for me to wax poetic because it was the best network pilot that I've gotten a chance to read in 15 years. And then my wife and I love Crazy Stupid Love. Like, absolutely love it. Yeah. So getting a chance to read his writing after seeing that film, recognize that this guy has something special. He has this wonderful balance of humor and heart that just go hand to hand. And they don't fight with one another, they complement one another. You read the pilot for This Is Us and you laugh hysterically out loud. And by the time you're done, you're crying from the page. So it's like, if we can execute this, you know, the blueprint is there. So I go in for the meeting, and then I come back for the audition. And folks were excited. Like, I could, I could see them. And I, I came in. I, I was excited because the material was so good that I wasn't really thinking about, can I get this part? I was like, I have something fun to do, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Like, that's how I felt about it, because the words were so good. It was easy to work on because you don't get those kind of words all the time. Like, I got a chance to go from Scott and Larry to now Dan Fogelman, mm-hmm. and it's just like an embarrassment <laughs> of riches. And so I auditioned. They felt really good about it. They wanted me to redo the audition because the background in the room, they were not pleased with. Oh, Jesus. So I had to come in for one. They said, Sterling, this audition was great. It was perfect. We want to do it one more time before we show it to the executives and everything. So I did it one more time. But they came to Fox. And I think I actually went from shooting OJ to a different building to audition for This Is Us and then go back to work on OJ. That is a crazy day. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where were you when, when that one came through for sure? I was out to dinner. And this is the thing. Okay, so the agent and manager, Jen Wiley Stockton and David Rose, they love, they live and love to break the news. <laughs> they love, it's right. like their favorite thing. They right. get on the conference call, they call you up and like, so, how you doing? <laughs> and you're waiting to hear something, right. but they're like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm great, what's up? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they got preempted. They got their thunderstone because John and Glenn called me first. <laughs> they're like, Brown, you hear the news? I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, we're doing it. We're doing the show. I'm like, yeah, baby. Let's make it happen. And then like 10 minutes later, I again, I think I, this was probably an Emmy-worthy performance. I say, it's my agent and my manager. And they're like, hey, so uh, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. What's up? And they're like, so you got the job. And I was like, oh, 
oh wow great I was like I already knew but <laughs> but for your benefit I wanted to share the right, unbridled the enthusiasm that I had the first time around you know take two that's awesome but it was good now you get the job at that point had they written more than the pilot or were, I guess you go and do that and then you hope to get picked up right right so no they hadn't written more than the pilot and I, I go and I, I did a play at the taper I did a Susan Laurie Parks play Father Comes Home from the Wars Parts 1, 2, and 3 and Dan and his wife came to see the play which I thought was so cool like you rarely get you know showrunners yeah. coming out to check out some theater but Dan came to see the show and he was moved by the show, and so was his wife. And it's a, it's a beautiful play. But I, I remember thinking two things to myself. I was like, how's the pilot? How's it coming together? And he's like, he said, Sterling, it's really good. He said, I don't say that a lot about stuff that I do, but I think this may be one of the best things that I've done. And this is because what you had read before your audition was just like essentially sides? You hadn't seen a full pilot or I, what? I hadn't seen the pilot. Oh, you're saying the the shot footage now. Yeah, right. We hadn't been, we had shot the pilot, right. but we hadn't been picked up to air right. so while I was doing the play. To, and you we're had not seen what was shot. Hadn't seen what was shot. I guess shot. they don't have to show yeah. you that. No, 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 no. Dan had seen it, and he's like, it, it's really good. Okay. And he's got this, he, he's got a very cherubic <laughs> face, right. and he's just smiling. He's like, it's good. It's right. good. And he's talking about the writers that he's trying to pull together and the course of the show. And he has four or five seasons sort of mapped out in his head already. But we didn't find out the pickup until towards the end of the run of the play. And then you get a chance to read 102, 103, 104, and us as a cast, each script that comes out, we're like, this is, this has the potential to be something really, really special because they're tapping into something within us as actors that moves us. So as a as a rule, once it got picked up and you guys were at full speed ahead, how far ahead of the viewer were you in terms of knowing the plot? So I think by the time we hit the air in September, we were probably shooting 108. Okay. 107, 108, something like that. Do you like, like that. that, though? Because what I wonder is, with film, you know at the beginning where it's going. Mm-hmm. With theater, you know at the beginning where it's going. Mm-hmm. With TV, especially with a show like this where it's sort of in the best sense, like a like a soap opera in a way where everything is left on a, you, you, there are a lot of questions yeah, unanswered. Yeah, yeah. For you, is that freeing or constraining because you don't have the answers yourself? Okay. So there are broad sketches that have been given to us as a cast, especially for the Pearson family. We have to sort of know the history of the family in order to represent it in the present. Even though it may be unspoken or unknown to the audience, we know how Jack died. Yes. Like we know sort of the history of the relationship, little bits between Miguel and Rebecca. Like right. We know these things so that we can live the life as fully as possible in the present. So he, he'll ask you, Dan, at the beginning, he's like, do you guys want to know? Do you not want to know? I was like... Tell me, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Because I kind of like helping to, to craft the journey together, right? So we know these things, and then we get the specifics as the episodes sort of come So together. at this moment, you guys are back in production, right? We are. Which one are you on now? We're on episode 203. 203? Yes. And how far ahead of that have you read? Nothing. So you right now, you're shooting 203. Yeah. You only know 203, but you're saying because of the sketch, you kind of— right. Generally, you know enough to feel good about what you're doing. Dan will bring us all in at the beginning of the season, and he will pitch the season to us. 
the overarching thing and then our sort of trajectory as characters individually. And so we know what the season is going to look like. I also go into the writer's room a lot because <laughs> I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And to see how they take, you know, five storylines and combine them and make them into something that's coherent and sort of poetic. Yeah, so I know what's happening with the season, but I'm still waiting to see like the specifics of the writing of each individual show. To do your job there, you have to know, obviously, you know, a bit of the story, as you've just said. Right. You also presumably have to spend a little time with the guys who are playing your character at other times. Yeah. And maybe somewhat coordinate with them. I don't know. A little bit. I think we watch each other's work. Like when I get a chance to watch Niles Fitch and Lonnie Chavis, who play the younger versions of Randall Pearson, I'm usually just sort of blown away. And more than coordinating anything, if anything, I'll just steal. (laughs) <laughs> just outright steal what these little kids are bringing to the table because they're, they're magnificent. What was your first indication, aside from Dan seeming confident about the pilot or you guys enjoying the scripts, what was the first indication to you that it was for people unassociated with the show working in a major and unusual way? And you've been on a lot of shows. Yeah. You would probably know if, if it was different. What was the first sign of that? The internet presence of the trailer. I had like 100 million hits or something on Facebook, which is sort of insane. And, and that was the first one. But once people watched, the feedback... Well, the pilot is such a unique thing because there's, there's emotion, there's heart, but there's also this gigantic twist. And everybody's like... Oh, (laughs) what? Yeah. (laughs) Like the fact that it's going back and forth between two different times in history and that this is a family that we're seeing. They know that Kevin and Kate obviously are twins early on and that Jack and Rebecca are, you know, about to have triplets, but that Jack and Rebecca are Kevin, Kate, and Randall's parents, like blows people's minds. Yeah. So we knew we had them on the hook with a good pilot. (laughs) But does a good pilot necessarily mean a good show? So after 102 where people were like, this show is really good. I had a cousin of mine, after probably three or four episodes, she left me a a voice memo. And she's saying, Sterling, look, I know you done won an Emmy and everything with your Christopher Darden. (laughs) But she said, this is us. This is something special. She says, like, I can see myself in everybody. And... You guys are entertaining and it's funny, but it's also, I feel healed. She's like, I feel like I've gone to therapy and to church and watched the show. She's like, this show is something special. So when my cousin, in particular, like when she hit me with that one, it was like, okay, okay, it's touching people. Now you have said that there's another thing that to you is particularly meaningful about playing the character who you play. And that is, quote, the perception in the country at large is that black men are absent when it comes to their families. But in This Is Us, you see a black man who loves his wife to the core and his children to the core. It's a wonderful image to put out into the world, close quote. Hmm. Maybe I can ask you to expand on that a little bit. I just feel as if we learn so much. A lot of people go to media first as a way of sort of interpreting reality, right? 
Rather than having actual exposure to reality and then seeing if, you know, media portrays it correctly. So the images that we put out into the world, while we hope to make something that is entertaining, it's also substantive. Yeah, yeah. And it means something. And so you can see a lot of gangbangers and, you know, police dramas with, you know, people behind bars, etc. I've, I've been killed on television, I can't tell you how many oh, times, Jesus. from playing both sides of the law. So to the black community, it's nice to see someone who you can look up to, who you feel as if you can look up to. The flawed, doing the best that they can, but still someone worthy of admiration. That's not lost on me, right? And to the mainstream society and homogenous parts of, of the world where they may not have much interaction with many African-Americans, but they get a chance to see Randall Pearson in their house. And they recognize him as a human being who loves his wife and his family and his children. Maybe that means the next time they encounter someone who's African-American, they recognize their humanity with a greater ease than they may not have before. One of the most emotional storylines for audiences was Randall finding his biological father in, I believe the episode was Memphis, which I think is also the one that I would say very wisely is your Emmy submission, I think, this year. And then, of course, losing his biological father. And if you're this far into the conversation, presumably... We don't need to say spoiler alert. Sure. Let us hope. Yes. What was that like to to play with Ron Cephas Jones? I, I hope I'm... Ron Cephas Jones. Cephas Jones, excuse yes. me. Yeah. And for that, coming back to the beginning of this conversation, where it happened for you at a much younger age, but you suddenly, I guess, lost your father. Yeah. Do you allow yourself to draw upon things like that when you're playing such an emotional thing? Did it make that story arc more emotional for you? You know, did it just hit home as much for you as it obviously did for viewers? Yeah, it did. And yes, I do. You know, you're drawing from all aspects of your life all the time, whatever serves and feeds the character in that moment. And my relationship with my dad was was a great one. Like he was, for 10 years, I got unconditional love from Sterling Brown Jr., right? And it sustains me to this day. And it becomes sort of foggier in terms of memory. And people will tell stories. And you like sometimes you don't know if the story is what you remember or if it's, you know, what actually transpired. But connections between fathers and sons always sort of resonate with me because I lost my dad at such an early age. So here I am presented with this character who lost his, you know, lost Jack at an early age and has a second chance. And what I would ask myself is, Brown, if you got a second chance to reconnect with Sterling Brown, would you do it? And the answer is yes. And in a very interesting way, while it's not Jack Pearson, but there's a man out here in the world that I'm connected to who helped bring me into existence. You owe it to yourself to see what that connection could possibly be. And what I love about the connection and the desire was that at first Randall sort of fools himself into thinking that I just want to tell him to go to hell. Like, I just want to show him how great I am in spite of you. But when the opportunity, when William opens the door and says, do you want to come in? There is no hesitation because what he really wants is to connect. And for somebody who 
lost a father at a young age and would go to different guys' houses and their dads, and I would just sort of like soak up different dads and sort of like use them to sort of help me get through the conversations that I never got a chance to have with my own dad, you know? So I, it was my entree into the character was fathers and sons. And I'm glad it resonated with people because it was it was cathartic for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to my dad when he died because they thought I was too young to be at the hospital. So to have that moment between Randall and William, between Sterling and Ron, to be able to actually help him through that transition to the other side, like I felt like I got a chance to say goodbye to my dad. That's great. So with the last two minutes here, I just wonder if we can do something we call sort of rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. To begin with, what is the biggest question about Randall that you still need answered? I need to know how he chose Beth. I need to know how these two people came together, how this black man raised by this white family chose this beautiful black woman and how she said yes to him. Like he, he, he's, he's had to have come a long way and had to seek her out and want that, to want to have, you know, to be connected to his culture in a way and share his life with this black woman. I need that story to be told. Okay. Yeah. This Is Us was the highest rated new series of the year across television. It's the first broadcast show in six years to get a nom for best drama series and would be the first in 11 years to win. What is your feeling about what is the biggest pro and the biggest con of broadcast television today? The biggest pro is that everybody can see it. It's readily accessible to all. You know, I didn't have WGN for a while, like different networks come and go off of different providers, etc. But NBC, CBS, Fox, ABC, WB, like they're there. It's going to be seen. The biggest con is 42 minutes and 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. You got to fit it into that block where when you go on your DVR and you look at the latest Game of Thrones and this one's 72 minutes, (laughs) this one's 67 minutes. However long you need to tell the story is what you're given. That's the toughest part. But yo, advertisers got to be happy. I understand. That's the biggest. That's the toughest. This past January, you got not one but two SAG Award nominations on the same morning. One for OJ, one for This Is Us. Then last month, you got your second consecutive Emmy nomination and became the first black person to get a Best Actor in a Drama Series nomination in 16 years, tying back to Andre Brower. What do you make of that? Man, it's so much. I mean, this this one means something in a way different than last year. Last year is your first and just happy that it happened, and and this one I'm happy about as well. But when I think about the history, and that somebody hasn't been nominated in 16 years in this category, I'm like, really? Is that the truth? And he won in 1998. Like, if my name is called, I'll be the first brother this millennium. (laughs) It's sort of insane to even contemplate that your boy from Olivet, Missouri, is in this place that that could actually be happening. What it makes me think is that I want to live a life and have a career that is worthy of this moment. And I think about the work that Andre Brower has done, uh, the work that James Earl Jones has done, who won before Andre Brower. Like, I want to be able to have a career where people will look back 
30, 40 years and be like, man, that's Sterling Brown. Like, he's, he's something else. <laughs> that's my hope. That's my hope. In terms of what's coming up in the next year or so for you, I've got on my radar here Marshall, mm-hmm. which is going to be a feature film. Yes. The Black Panther feature film. Oh, yeah, heard of that. And Predator feature film. Heard all three of those. And, my, and, of course, season two of This Is Us. Can you give a little tease about these things? I mean, people obviously know about This Is Us coming back, but sure. these others where they're going to get to see you in a major movie, in several major movies in the near future. Right. Well, Marshall's going to be the most recent. October 13th in theaters. And it's a story about Thurgood Marshall before he was a Supreme Court justice, the first African-American Supreme Court justice, before he tried Brown versus the Board of Education. And it takes place in early 1940s. I think it's 1941 in Connecticut. He's the chief sort of litigator for the NAACP. He's been going around the country looking to defend African-Americans that he thinks are falsely accused. Mostly they're in front of all white juries, juries of their peers, of course, Mm -hmm. just white peers, I guess. (laughs) And Joseph Spell is the character that I play. He's a chauffeur for a wealthy white family. And he's accused of the rape and attempted murder of Eleanor Strubing, white socialite played by Kate Hudson. And so Marshall has to team up with a Jewish lawyer by the name of Sam Friedman. He has to team up with him because the judge does not allow him to try the case because he hasn't passed the Connecticut bar, quote-unquote. So basically, he has to play Geppetto to Sam Friedman's puppet, and he's allowed to sit in the courtroom, but not allowed to speak. The Jewish lawyer has to do all of the speaking. And this is a real case, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'm sort of fascinated by truth is often stranger than fiction, but that I didn't know anything about this trial, and I'm excited that folks get a chance to check it out. Mm-hmm. Chad Bozeman plays Marshall. Josh Gad plays Sam Friedman. It's a great group of people and a wonderful story. The relationship between Eleanor Strubing and Joseph Spell, you know, they kind of have to find somebody's lying, somebody's telling the truth. And so the, the, the movie is an investigation of getting to that truth. And I'm, I like it. Can't wait. Yeah. I like it. So yeah. that's the first one. Okay. The second one will be Black Panther, which with will be... Chadwick again, with right? With Chadwick again. Chad's the man. I remember when I saw him in Civil War too, introducing Black Panther to the Marvel Universe, I got really excited. And knowing that he was going to have a standalone movie, a black superhero movie with the Marvel backing to it, you know? Every kid loves a superhero movie. I love Batman. I love Superman. And so those were the ones that I got a chance to watch as a kid. I get a chance to take my son to see the Black Panther. He gets a chance to see somebody who looks like him as the superhero, right? I also can't wait to see little white kids dressed up as the Black Panther for Halloween. It makes me really excited, you know? But what I can say without losing a limb, (laughs) because the Marvel Universe does not play, is that it's going to have all the bells and whistles that you expect from a Marvel film, and it's got a great social message in the midst of it as well. And I feel like any anytime you can get people entertained and thinking simultaneously from a comic book film, I think you're doing something really good. Yeah. Ryan Coogler is a beast. Yep. He directed his ass off. It's going to be three for three. Fruitvale, Creed, 
onto the Black Panther. He's <laughs> he's taking him down. That's great. So yeah, that's that. And then lastly, I think it, right now we're slated for August of 2018 for the Predator. Working with Shane Black, whose Twitter handle is Bonafide Black. I'm just jealous because he took it before I could get to it. <laughs> It's great. Yeah. Uh, grew up as a kid loving Predator Arnold and Carl Weathers and Bill Duke and Jesse the Body and Shane in the movie. He's got a very different take. And it's, it's always interesting for me to see how movies are very much reflective of the time in which they came into being. Right. So you're in the 80s and there's a sort of clear, good, bad you know, Cold Wars sort of going on in the background of that. And so it's like, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, let's do it. Things are a little bit more difficult to decipher. I think we dance in the gray much more in 2017 than we did in the early 80s. And I think this movie dances in the gray a bit as well. It's funny, because he's got a wicked sense of humor. It's action-packed. I think folks will be interesting to see how he has updated it for 2017. Awesome. Yeah. Well, the final thing is this. I guess three, maybe four years ago, if we had sat down across the table like this and I had said to you, this is what the next three or four years are going to look like, what would you have said to me? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I am so glad it's worked out and I thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having keep me. Keep it up. Yeah. It's awesome. Appreciate yeah. it, thank brother. Thank you. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.